The lesson this morning is from Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, uh, 
James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town, that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Go ahead and be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, would you again, by your Spirit, uh, send your Spirit into us that we might understand the truth of your Word as it's proclaimed, as it's written in your name. Amen. Well, welcome again. Um, for those of you that weren't here last week, we're in a new series this summer over Romans. We're going to be in it like, I think I did the weeks. It's close to 15 weeks that we're going through the book of Romans. And the lectionary actually had us start in Romans chapter 4. Today we're in Romans chapter 5. And what I'll try to do as we move through the book of Romans is uh, refer back to the first three chapters that we, we didn't cover. Paul often does, and of course the theme carries on, but hopefully that'll be... Um, You'll be able to understand each sermon even if, you, if we don't talk about the first three chapters. You can always go back at home and read the first three chapters too to get uh, reacquainted with that. But the interesting thing about Romans chapter 5 is that Paul highlights from the very beginning the power of hope. The power of hope. And it makes it clear because he uses this word consistently, um, rejoicing. You see, the Christian is in a unique position to be able to rejoice over the future as if it's already happened, like God has said it. And there's nothing holding us back from that joy, that rejoicing, that resting, because God knows everything and has power over everything. His promises of our, redential, our eventual redemption in particular, and as Paul writes here, glory in Christ, there's nothing to stop those eventual realities. So we can rejoice in them. So why do we hesitate? What holds you and I back from time to time resting in that knowledge, that hope? If we can rejoice, and God says for us to rejoice in the glory that is coming, resurrection and eternal life, we can even rejoice when things don't go well. Why do we hesitate? Why do we doubt? Let me give you a little illustration. I feel like instant replay in sports are ruining the game <laughs> because what will end up happening is someone will score a touchdown or a home run close to the foul line or score a soccer goal. Might have looked like he was offsides, but everybody begins to cheer and then the referees get involved, 
right? And then the, the whole stadium kind of like hushes. And even after that point, if the instant replay confirms that they did in fact score, they did in fact you know, win the game, then the, the, the screaming and the cheers start back up again. But it was never what it could have been if they would just stop replaying everything and just let us rejoice, right? I feel like the enemy sometimes does that to us. Let's check the instant replay before you get too happy about what's about to happen. And he, and he makes it clear in the, the first few chapters in Genesis by using this, oh, this line with Eve when he says, did God really say? It's the, it's the devil's way of get involved in our eternal game that the Lord has already said, this is what's going to happen. And he steals our joy. And he steals you and I's kind of uh, ability to rejoice and sing. I think I titled this sermon Permission to Celebrate, for lack of a better title, but that's part of it, you know? The Lord has given us permission to be happy and full of joy, even when things aren't going well, he says, even when you suffer. The enemy's trying to get involved. But of course, we know that God did say. Not only that, he's given us evidence in the resurrection. The empty tomb is evidence that God is not offsides. The touchdown does count. And of course, the Lord is on his throne. So there's no danger in celebrating too soon. But more than that, this thoroughgoing kind of celebration is built on something that I think you and I sometimes overlook, this idea of hope. Now, in our culture, sometimes you, you highlight things like faith or love even more so. And I'm not, I don't mean to take away from God's word through Paul that love is the greatest of those three, but hope's a big deal. And it's worth considering and, and meditating upon and understanding what it is because hope gives us the ability to rejoice now, to smile even when things are difficult. That is a strength we cannot and should not ignore. I think that's what Paul is getting to in part in Romans chapter 5. So we're going to go through these verses a little bit, especially the first five, but we'll try to look at all of them. So if you have your Bibles, turn to there. And I think what we're going to discover is a few things that I'd like to focus on. The, the value of hope, like what is the value of hope? How do you use it? And truly, what is holding us back from time to time? So let's, let's look at that if we can. So if you would, let's look at Romans chapter five. And I'm just going to read verse one again to get us reacquainted. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace, he says. You see, peace is key to rejoicing. No one at war or consumed by anxiety and guilt can really sing or rejoice because we don't know what's happening. There's a lack of peace. And peace in the Bible's terminology doesn't just mean a cessation of violence, um, it truly is all the blessings that come from a lack of war or violence. It means that it's not just that you are resting, but that you are flourishing. It means your garden is growing. Your relationship with your spouse is better than ever. That when you work hard at your job, you're seeing the fruits of your labor. This is the kind of peace or shalom that the Bible refers to. And it's key. Now, there's a different kind of peace that Paul lays out here in Romans that is even more important than that. It's a peace that you have with God. And again, if you take what the word shalom means and how I just described it, it's not just a cessation of conflict between you and the Lord, but actually a flourishing relationship that you are growing in joy and abundance from knowing God and having a relationship with him. 
Have you ever felt what that's like? Now, I know you, you and I, I've been in seasons where I felt like there was a desert, you know? You could, I could argue that that desert of where I don't really feel close to the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that we're in conflict, but it's not the same thing as flourishing. I'll be frank, I don't, I don't like it. I remember one of the first major times I felt like I was in this desert with the Lord, with his spirit. I was in college. And I was having quiet times. I was spending time in my Bible, not every day, but frequently for a college student especially. Um, and I was just like, I wasn't feeling anything. I didn't feel any connection to the Lord. I didn't feel like he was even in the room with me. And I remember for a two-week solid, I, I started to be more faithful in my relationship with the Lord and reading the Bible and praying. And I just kept pursuing and kept asking the question, where are you, God? And finally, after a couple of weeks, it was a solid, I think, two weeks, maybe even closer to three, I, feel it, I finally felt a change. And I remember when the change happened and the subsequent days and weeks that followed, I really felt like the Lord was trying to teach me a lesson to continue to pursue him, to continue to go after him. He was playing a little bit like it felt like hide and seek for my own benefit, right? But what I felt in that shift was a, was a kind of peace that was very different than just, okay, we're not in conflict right now. Do we sometimes treat church and our relationship with God like that? Like the first kind of peace, not the more full kind of peace, where we're just looking for a cessation of conflict. Just stop coming at me, Lord. <laughs> you know, just leave me alone. That might be, if we're honest with ourselves in our darker periods or our more foolish periods spiritually, where that's all we're looking for. God, stop convicting me. Leave me alone. Let me live my life. But that's not the kind of peace God wants for us, and it's not the kind of peace that the Bible is talking about. The Lord created you. He asked us to call him Father, Heavenly Father. That's an entirely different kind of relationship. It's not the kind of relationship you have like with a boss you don't want to see too often. You know the one I'm talking about where the only time you get called into his or her office is when you're in trouble or you did something wrong, and so the last thing you want to do is hear from your boss. Things are going well when you hear nothing. I'm obviously not espousing that kind of uh, mentorship or leadership, but that's not what we're talking about here. The Lord says, call me, pray to me, say, Heavenly Father. So it's a totally different kind of thing. So when, when Paul says, there we, since, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, and we talked a little bit about that last week, justified means being declared righteous, being declared right with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a different sort of peace. I feel like I've spent a lot of time on that. I need to move forward, but I wanted to give you guys an understanding of what that is. So our legal standing has already been accomplished. It's not a subjective thing, but an objective reality. It's not based on your feelings. Isn't that great to know? That your standing with God is not dependent on how great or how miserable you feel. So it's an objective reality, and because of that, even when you're doing poorly, you can rest in that peace. Often when I sin or mess up in a relationship, the, the, the one thing that I want more than anything is just to know with my wife or my kids or my family or anybody, our friend, are we good? Are we good? I want to know we're good. If I need to apologize after forgiveness, I'll do it. I just want to know we're good because I can't even sleep. So peace with God is infinitely more important than that. So it's one of those things that people seek, that want, even at the end of their life, even if they've had everything they could ever want, success in the world, friends, whatever, what they're really looking for is peace. 
You know, the opposite of that, or maybe the opposite of hope or fulfilled hope is this word that I've heard, this phrase that I've heard in kind of the psychology world. It's this phrase called destination sickness. Have you heard of this? That people spend the best part of their lives making money, becoming successful, getting ahead, and find at the end of their lives they've kind of wasted. They've wasted their lives. All the good things, the joyful things, the things of peace, the things that make for a sense of accomplishment have slipped by and have missed them. That is what's called destination sickness, the malaise of arriving at where you always wanted to be and finding that you do not want anything you've got. I mean, regret, right? Many, many people are suffering from that disease, and there may be part of you right now that's doing that. But Jesus proclaims, if you enter the door, come to me, if you begin to understand what he has taught, you'll be saved from that destination of sickness. And what the world offers in, the, in, in kind of a, a, a contrarian way is like a, a trade-in society. It's like a cheap distraction that ultimately destroys a soul's ability to find contentment. It's like whenever something wears out or you're done with it, oh, all you need is just the new next thing, and then, and then you'll find peace. This isn't all our fault because the ability to find contentment in the things that the Lord is, wants to give you is kind of advertised out of our character. Someone wrote, it seems to me that if there's one thing that our current version of advertising-based capitalism teaches us all, it's that everything is replaceable. Everything can be reproduced or traded in for a new and improved model. And that applies to coaches, to churches, to spouses. We live in a trade-in society. Further, someone else said this, where the promise of being able to eventually replace anything or anyone lies underneath all of our experiences, even our spiritual lives. The values of the trade-in society are all around us. Abortion is a supreme example of this. The choice to kill an unborn baby and prevent inconvenience or expense is perhaps the ultimate Western symbol of a trade-in society. What can epitomize the spirit of everything is replaceable better than a legal practice of eliminating human beings? The divine image bearers that are eminently not replaceable. Isn't it fascinating that even our fingerprints are unique? Billions and billions of people, no one has the same fingerprints. The mentality of the trade-in for the next thing is a product of our spiritual thirst. But the opposite is a deep satisfaction found only in Christ. The insatiable need for novelty and replacement withers on the vine of Christ, and it is replaced with glorious, grounded contentment and peace. So how do we find peace? Well, this is what Paul gets into when he keeps saying things like, the Lord Jesus Christ, or in Christ. This is what we mean. And so if, you're, if you find yourself in your Christian life a little bit joyless, it may be that you have not really tapped into this idea of the hope of God, the hope in the glory of God. Now, um, so when we talk about the value of hope, one of the first things is that we have peace. I think I've laid that out pretty well. But also, we have endurance. If you look past verse 2 and look at verse 3, look what he says next. Not only that, not only can we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So one of the values of hope is that it produces endurance in you. Now, I don't want to lose you, because sometimes when I read this, I'm like, hold on, time out. 
So God, are you, are you telling me that um, I could have hope and then I can endure sufferings and, be in, and, and have endurance, or I can kind of discard hope and then not go through the sufferings. Is that possible on this side? Because part of you wants to say, I choose not suffering instead. <laughs> keep the hope, keep the endurance. I just don't want to suffer. But really what, what, what the Bible is teaching us and showing us is, is that these things are going to happen to us regardless. And what we're really asking for when we're saying, I don't want your hope, keep it is we're asking for an incomplete life, something less than. We're not asking for more, we're asking for less from God. C.S. Lewis has this great kind of piece where he talks about the love of God, and, he's, and, and oftentimes the love of God is actually just, well, it just bothers us because it interrupts our life, it nitpicks at us, and uh, he gives this illustration of like a, a house where you think when you let the Lord in, he's going to come in and kind of remodel things and move stuff around. Really, what is he interested in is blowing out walls and adding on huge additions and you know, rewiring everything. It's very inconvenient and uncomfortable. But when we say, I don't want the love of God or I don't want the hope of the glory of God, you're actually, actually asking for something less. Endurance is a huge thing because it produces something of value eternal value, which prior to it did not exist. It reminds me of that story. I think we talked about Abraham last week. That it wasn't until he actually went through a couple of decades of waiting for the Lord's promises that his faith became stronger at that point than it was at the beginning. And his faith wouldn't have been stronger if he didn't have to endure the waiting period. So endurance is similar and so let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you want to be more resilient, stronger, dependable? We should not avoid the hard things in life, especially as it depends on standing up, or excuse me, standing up for our faith. So here's the next thing too. Enough of that on endurance. Verse five. Um, it says not only that in verse three, and then endurance produces character and character uh, produces hope. But verse five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It does not put us to shame. This is a futuristic kind of understanding that you have this hope that one day all the stuff will be redeemed and you'll be raised to life. Even your loved ones will be raised to life to live eternally. And so, well, have you ever played that game um, where what if I could go back and tell your younger self the wisdom you have now? You ever done that? If, if I could, I'd go back to my 21-year-old self and tell myself to get my act together and wait for this woman named Kate and marry her as soon as you can. That's what I would have done. My life would have been so much different. There would have been so much less wasted time. By knowing the end, we are less prone to regret-inducing mistakes. We are more empowered to live a holy life in a fallen world. This is what hope is producing, this wisdom, this divine wisdom that you have to say, I'm not gonna live that way because I know how it ends up. If I go down this path of, let's say, temptation is sin, it's just gonna end up, if I go down that road, it'll lead to death, my own death, maybe. And so we know that, we've been given that divine wisdom and so it helps us to live a holy life now, one that will not produce regret. When we think about the value of hope in that light, this divine wisdom, 
you begin to understand why it pales in comparison to all this, all this other thing that the world um, offers. Success and um, accolades and all these other things, renown and popularity. You can see why so many wealthy um, people who get to the top have this depression, this malaise, this destination sickness. It explains why some of our most talented actors in the world, comedians who reach the pinnacle of fame, sometimes take their very lives. Because now I'm here, what now? I thought this was what I wanted. So the value of hope. Now, how do you use it? How does it come in handy? Well, some of those things I just explained, but in verse three, Paul makes it very clear that one of the things that hope comes in handy with is it helps us transcend our sufferings. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. This is not a, like, find your happy place, you know, find that little cave where nothing hurts and I'm just going to ignore this. No, he says, rejoice in our sufferings. And so this is some, some sort of transcending quality where we can look through the sufferings while we're in the sufferings and still rejoice. We can still celebrate as if the goal happened or the touchdown um, uh, came through or Tony Romo did in fact make that pass to Des Bryant in the divisional playoffs. It was a catch. They ended up winning the Super Bowl. All that kind of stuff. Sorry, I'm still bitter about that game. But anyway, so we can rejoice in our sufferings, but also we can transcend our difficulties. Hope actually has the ability to empower you to succeed when you normally would fail. How you use it is it allows you to go through a difficult time through a suffering and say, I've got this. To use another football illustration, I love football. But I remember in uh, college, I was playing an intramural football team and we were down by just a few points and we just needed to score um, one more time. And the clock was running out and we had this great quarterback on our team named Nathan who played high school uh, football. He had a great arm and he called the play to me. And he told me what he was gonna do. It was a very short little field now because we're right there by the end zone and everybody was crowded and he goes, you're just gonna run a skinny post. It's gonna be a little bit crowded, but the ball will be there. Get up and go get it. And I was like, I got this, right? And then the play happened and then we take off and I start running into the end zone and there are people everywhere because everybody's squished in there. And this one cat is like running across the end zone right for me. And I know Nathan's thrown the ball and I just hesitate and I stop and I look up and the ball goes like this. And in my head, I was thinking, I don't want to get hit. This is flag football. It's not that important. You know, I don't have pads, whatever, you know. And I watched the ball go by and I looked down the guy who I was scared of. He didn't move a muscle. He didn't jump. And I look back at Nathan, and he's like, and that was the end of the game. We lost, obviously. If somebody would have told me, Mark, when you run that skinny post, you get to the end zone, you see that guy, you don't need to worry about him because he's not going to hit you. You're going to be free to catch that ball. Guess what I would have done? I hope. I would have ran, not looked at that guy, jumped, caught it, and we would have won the game. This is what hope does, how you use it. God is telling you the end to not fear even those who could take your physical life because even that is not the last word. And really, isn't that what hope does ultimately? People are afraid of it. People are afraid of hope. They're afraid of faith. They're afraid of love because they're like, what if I do it and it doesn't work out? And God's word says that's not part of the equation. It always works out. Even if you go down the road to actual death, 
You've lost your spouse. You've lost your child, God forbid. You've lost someone. God says, you can mourn, but don't worry about it. Don't despair. You have hope because the resurrection is coming. So that's why he says, hope does not put us to shame. Another translation says, it doesn't disappoint. And it doesn't. You're not gonna get hit. So by knowing the end, we can transcend our difficulties. If you think of your Christian walk then, what if someone were to tell you that you can conquer sin? I don't mean that you're gonna go the rest of your life without sinning, but that God by his spirit by his death, resurrection, and ascension, and by his Holy Spirit in your life has now empowered you to resist sin, to resist temptation. Can you do it? The answer, of course, is yes. And maybe some of the reason you and I fail in those moments is because we doubt. We get distracted. We're obviously not close with the Lord. But because of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome temptation. We can. It's a little bit like uh, God has set you free from sin and death and you used to have chains on your legs and now they've been broken open. And you look down, the chains might be still there kind of loosely hanging around your ankles and it's just this conception. You think, oh, I'm still in prison. No, just step out of them. You're okay. Go. And there are times when you talk about how you use it and I've thought about the end and I've thought about this sin or temptation in the moment. I won't get into details, but I think... I know what ends up after this. I don't need to do this. And it's actually kept me from sinning. It actually has power to do that. Hope does not disappoint because it can give you the power to transcend your difficulties, even the difficulties of temptation and sin. Okay, so final thing. So what's holding us back? What is holding you and I back from doing this? Um, I have in here verse 11. I'll just read it real quick. More than that, Paul writes, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did God really say? Are you and I really reconciled? Do we really have peace? This is the same lie the enemy has been telling us. And so you ask the question, what is holding us back from allowing hope to work in our lives? Some of it is, is that we don't really understand his word, the truth of it, the comprehensiveness of it. And so I thought about this yesterday and it made me think that, that really to unlock the power of hope I, and to really get the most out of it, I have to be familiar with the promises of God found in his word. You've got to know it. And maybe as we've talked at the beginning here a little bit about hope, you have some verses that you return to and that you are familiar with that has to do with hope and promise. I just want to share a couple examples for you with you guys. One, one I returned to, one I discovered recently, and one I have a little bit of difficulty with, okay? And there's tons in there. But one I returned to, and this is about holiness for me, and it's out of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Paul writes in this letter, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, and this is the one that replays over and over in my head, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. 
for me, when I read these, this promise of God being with me, as I think about these things, it helps me to stay tight to the call that God has for my life and he has for yours to be holy because he is holy, to resist temptation and sin. These are, these are promises that if I would think on these things, then I'm following the footsteps of Paul. I'm following the footsteps of Jesus. And of course, I have plenty of examples of when I've done this that it's planned out that, panned out that way. Another one that I discovered relatively recently is this one on about children. I'm a father. Happy Father's Day, by the way, to everyone. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote this in his 32nd chapter. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. It's just one Old Testament verse, and there's other verses in the Old Testament that talk about the promises given to your children. Even one I discovered recently, and I'm sorry I don't have the address here, of grandchildren, which I didn't think existed in the Bible. I mean, I know they talk about the, the thousandth generations and stuff like that, but for me, I, I brush over that. I go to the kids and then, and then whatever else. Who knows what's going to happen with the grandchildren? But I found a verse, I'll have to find it later, that was a promise to the grandchildren. But here's how it played out in the New Testament. If you still don't believe me, Acts chapter 16. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. His whole family responded to faith, to the gospel. You see the promises of God in the Old Testament panning out in the new. And so this one I've discovered recently, and I look at my children and I look at them now with hope that the gospel and the word of God will not go and return void, but that it's producing fruit in them. And then finally, one I have difficulty with. I don't have a hard life, so this is one I have difficulty with. John 6, 33. I have told you these things that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This one I have difficulty because it's a different sort of promise. It's to promise you're, you're going to have difficulty in this world. It's going to be hard. But take heart because I have overcome it. And so that one I have difficulty because in some respects, I'm not looking forward to difficulty or heartache or temptation or sadness or grieving. And like I said a moment ago, my life has been very, very blessed. So there's a little bit of me that's like, I don't want the rug to be pulled out. I've got a wonderful wife, a vibrant, awesome church, you guys being a part of, and then my children. But the promise, of course, the hope is, is that Christ is overcoming, so cling to that. So you may be here going, well, I, I don't know that I want hope. I get all this, it's starting to make a little bit of sense, but I'm still, I'm still doubtful, I'm still hesitating. Well, um, I was talking to my wife about this the other day, I said, what, what is the value of hope to you? Because I, I see that it's like, if you don't go after hope, it's like living a cowardly or a lesser life. And she said, yes. And she said this, I love this line, I'll share it with you. He said, a, a life without hope is choosing to live a life of half existence. And I said, let me write that down. Because it is, and she's right, and that was truth. It, it's true for all of us, whether you're a believer or not, that if you live without hope, it's choosing to live a life of half existence. And for those who are not believers in Christ, the root and solidity of hope actually comes from Christ himself and his resurrection. 
Because we live in a, a fallen world, the life we are living is already a half existence. And that's the thing. You may sit here and go, I, I don't know that I want it. You're already living it. You, you may just be blind to it or ignorant to it, put your head in the sand. But the Bible in part and the, the natural consequences of sin, death, and this fallen world is making us aware, aware that this is not the way the world was supposed to be. It's not how the Father created it. So there is a plan to make it all redeemed and to renew all life. As Christ says, to make all things new. You're already living a half existence. And so what God is offering you, among other things, love and faith, things that actually last and endure forever, he's offering to you hope. The ability to endure something better, something stronger. So hope is one of those enduring things of great value. And we do wise to pay attention to it. It is power to live courageously, to live faithfully, and to live life fully. So let us not choose then a life, a half-life, but a full and complete life. It will better prepare us for eternal life. Hope is a strength we cannot ignore. So I invite you to live a more full life, to grasp hope, to believe it, to trust it, because there's glory waiting, even in and past death, eternal life. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for this enduring thing that you have offered up to us, even while we were enemies, weak and lost, lost and dead in our own sin, you died for us. And because of your death and resurrection and now ascension, as you sit at the right hand of God, you've given us hope. A hope that gives us the ability to endure and to overcome. So Father, would you help us to see that like a shining light as it empowers us to live a holy life to transcend all difficulties and sufferings. Would you give that to every person in this room, to our marriages, to our relationships, to our work? We ask that you would do that because of your promises and your faithfulness, not our own. In Christ's name, amen. Will you please stand?